carnivorous fuck. <laughs> carnivorous couch. It happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. Hi, everybody. This is Carnivorous Couch with Brady and Rob. And we're going to do a little podcast for y'all. Yeah, we are. Where are my notes? I had notes somewhere. Uh, We wrote shit down this time. Welcome to Carnivorous Couch. I'm Rob, and that's... Brady Larson. And we have no guests this week. Uh, this is a spoiler full podcast, and we do a, a film a week. Now uh, we're two film geeks, and I should hear no problems with us giving away the plot to, uh, well, what I feel is an underwhelming plot of. What's this film called? This film, which is full of all the plot you could ask for, is Field of Dreams. And what year is it from? This is 1989. And please, children, sit down. Let us take you back to that fateful year. I was but a wee lad of seven, and my grandpapa took me to the Alameda County State Fair for my seventh birthday to watch pigs race. In the Oscars, uh, Do the Right Thing and Driving Miss Daisy were two prominent films about race, and there was quite a controversy when Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee's seminal masterpiece, was not nominated, and Driving Miss Daisy became the rare film to win Best Picture without a Best Director nomination. Elsewhere, Daniel Day-Lewis won his first Oscar. A young Steven Soderbergh showed up on the scene. What did Daniel Day-Lewis win for back in 1989? Oh, I'm sorry, Rob. Uh, My left foot. Your left foot. Yes. Wait, are you naming a film, or are you just being like, My left foot, you don't know. Well, my left foot, you don't know, and also, my left foot. My right foot? (laughs) No, that would just be silly. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, yes, elsewhere, a young Steven Soderbergh showed up on the scene and received his first Oscar nomination for his debut film, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Meg Ryan was not nominated for her fake orgasm for best sound editing. Elsewhere, there were mermaids and talking babies that sounded like Bruce Willis. Sean Connery showed us all that the best way to kill a Nazi is through seagulls. Wait, mermaids? Yeah, the little mermaid. Oh, that was 89. Yeah, that was 1989. All right, ran if, if not for that movie, Disney in the 80s would have been one of the worst years for animation, worst decades for animation ever. No, it would have been. Yeah, see, Brady had a rant planned, but I thought I had to interrupt it. Anyway, rant on, Brady. Rant on. Oh, thank you. Uh, what else happened in this year? Uh, children were shrank. A noble scorpion-sized ant died fighting to save them. Uh, or a, an ant-sized scorpion killed a very large ant. Uh, either way, the only thing to fear in 1989 was Rick Moranis's wanton disregard for the natural world. It was a strange time, Rob. Well, also, I remember in 1989, I had one of those squirt guns with the tank that you put on your back, but mine jammed, and my girl... F- my girlfriend... God damn it, why do I do that? I don't even want to continue with this story now. My sister... <laughs> Wantonly sprayed me with her little, just normal squirt gun. 
uh, which my dad actually used at the lake cabin to squirt the fire, which somehow made it, uh, you know, flame up better, which was baffling to me as a child. Uh, anyway, mine was jammed. She was squirting me, and I felt it an injustice, and I went crying to my mom, and then she fixed it, and but she didn't really fix it because she didn't know how pressure works, and I don't, I think she still doesn't know. Interesting. Anyway, I got squirted a whole bunch, and my awesome thing with the tank on the back did not work for shit. That, that's speaking of which. And I think my dad just looked at me and went, dumb shit kid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of childish violence, though, Rob, 1989 was also a year where we were assured that dogs who were hitmen could go to heaven in spite of being hitmen. Uh, and at the same time, a little movie called Pet Cemetery promised us that there was a loophole for dogs who still hadn't murdered enough. But obviously, they would eventually go to heaven. All dogs. All dogs go to heaven. Go to heaven. Yeah. All right. Well, so anyway, let's go ahead and check what's next on our agenda. Got paper here? Yeah. Uh... Um, and so, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Uh, that's the next thing I wrote. Oh, wait, that's that thing. That's different. All right, we'll get rid of that. Yeah. Tear, it, tear it up. I think we're into a plot now. Oh, it's on this. Ah, here's the front side of this. Here we go. Uh, so checking in, Brady. What did you do this week? Myself this week? I went to Sacramento to visit with my girlfriend's family. I said, how'd you do, not what you do. How? Okay, how did that go? Reasonably well. How was Andrew? He was good. We uh we partied it up. That motherfucker hates me. He might he might have his reasons. I think he likes <laughs> me better than he liked you at first. Uh that's that's the Tessis brother that we were talking about a couple podcasts ago who screamed at us for being on a tandem bike because it was a quote crazy contraption. Oh my god, get two bikes sort of thing. Uh that was just last podcast, huh? That was a week ago. Jesus Christ, there's a lot of things happening a week. Uh, me. Not oh yeah, sorry, I didn't not even much ask happened this you. week. You had to ask about yourself. Uh, you <laughs> stepped on my joke, though. My joke was, Jesus Christ, a lot of things happened a week. Uh, me, not much happened this week. Uh, my day off today was riddled with emails back and forth from this really bitchy person at my fucking office. Who I shouldn't talk. Somebody from work might listen to this, and they might be, oh, Rob's pissed at that woman. Dude shall not be named... Oh, I'm so mad, though. It's just, mm, just emails on my day off of foolish bullshit. Um, okay, so why did we do this film? I don't know, but please, please do not take your anger out on this sweet saint what of anger? a film. I never have anger, Brady. No one is angry. You're right. You're right. You're not. Please. Just no, no, seriously. Let why me see my why do we pick this film? Uh, why, do, why do we pick this film? We announced it last week, and my idea was I always feel it's most interesting to defend a film that has maybe a strike against it coming in. And one of the interesting areas for me, because maybe... Just one strike against it? Or one, two, three strikes you're out? Because it's a baseball movie! Oh! Bazing! Ben Stein would have loved that. He can't be here with us today because the actual baseball postseason just started, and he's got his own podcast about baseball. Yeah, to do. and he's really monotone, and so we didn't really want to have him along. 
Oh, wait, that's a different Ben Stein. Sorry. Um, yeah. Bueller. Actually, wait, wait. Insert sound drop here. Cut this out. Okay. Well, on that note, let us hope that our biases aside, we can all see this film with clear eyes. So, I'm going to give a little plot synopsis for anyone who doesn't know what the movie Field of Dreams is about. You know the first time I saw this movie? Not the first time, but I mean, the most memorable time I saw this movie was at a UMYF camp, United Methodist Youth Foundation retreat. Hmm. And it was this whole thing. I had to sit in a convention center and nicely padded, you know those nicely padded chairs that have like the metal rim and they're navy blue and they're not really comfortable because they always get squashed by lots of fat kids sitting on them because we live in America uh, where there's lots of fat kids. And... (laughs) So Rob, anyway. you try to alienate a different base every <laughs> week, man. <laughs> well, you know, that's my job. Anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, we had to sit there, and, and the pastor would drone on and on about, this is a movie about faith. Look, this man had faith, even though everybody was against him, even though they said, hey, man, you got to stop doing what you're doing because it's causing the farm to go bankrupt, so forth and so on. He had faith, and then his wife even back talked him and then he he continued talking and then she went oh i had that same dream too you gotta have faith and then he had faith and then he had faith for terrence and he had faith for everything and you gotta have faith and you gotta keep pushing on even when you get to the point where you go why what's in it for me what's in it for me you gotta have faith faith says george michael anyway at that particular umyf retreat i was bored because we had a dance and i was 12 so I was a late bloomer. I wasn't into chicks yet. I mean, I was never not into chicks. Like, I was always cool with chicks. I was never like, hey, chicks are gross. I, I never did that whole thing. But I wasn't, like, into them yet. So anyway, I, f- I was like, well, I'm just going to find my sister and torment her. So I found my sister, and I yanked on her ponytail. And then she turned around, and it wasn't my sister. And I just started to apologize, but the girl just looked at me and said, don't even start. And then stalked off in a huff. And I was like, well, I got off pretty easy. My huh. sister would have smacked me. Yeah. Anyway, uh, where were we? Uh, <laughs> I mean, all right, let's do a plot synopsis. I, it's almost unimaginable that anyone doesn't know what this movie is about, but here we go, starting from ground zero. Field of Dreams, directed by Phil Alden Robinson, was nominated for Best Picture in 1989. It is based on the novel Joe Jackson. And the story is essentially about, essentially, I use that word too often. Side note. Yeah. Film was going to be called Shoeless Joe, but uh, in testing, yeah, those focus groups that you always hear about from celebrities, they said, Shoeless Joe, it okay. sounds like it's about a hobo. Why we got no shoes? Give the guy some fucking <laughs> shoes. Anyway, go on. Okay. Uh, all right. Where were you? <laughs> I'm doing a plot synopsis. Where are you? Oh, you're right here. I see. (laughs) Okay. So Field of Dreams is about a character named Ray Kinsella, played by Kevin Costner. Uh, He is a man who grew up, I think, uh, on the East Coast and had a fractious relationship with his father. They both loved baseball, which obviously is uh, one of the central entry points of the movie. It's a movie about baseball, and we'll be talking later if it's a movie about any other things. But... He had a fractious relationship with his dad, and as a result, he moved over for college to the University of California, Berkeley, where he met his wife. Upon that date, they they experienced the 60s together. They went to Berkeley in the 60s, 
in the heyday. Like they all of the 60s in one date. No, no, they they met at or upon Cal- one date. They met. No, no, they met at Cal Berkeley. You know, you know how long it takes to graduate. Oh yeah, my girlfriend graduated from there. We experienced yeah. all of the twenty teens in one tumultuous year. Tumultuous era, man. Crazy. Anyway, but all that's done in like really uh, kind of. All right. It, you ever seen adaptation? Uh, yeah, I love that. Remember when they say, God help you if you use voiceover monologue in any movie? There's got to be a better way to, to describe your plot, so forth and so on. I do remember that. Even though that movie itself controverts that logic. Yes, I know. But the whole entire opening sequence where what you're talking about, they're like, uh, we feel the need to tell you all this. We're going to tell you all up front so that we don't ever have to reference it again. Where I really feel like a well-made movie... We'll do this by referencing it through a comment or a flashback or something like that when it becomes a valid point to bring up as opposed to just giving the back history about all this stuff for kind of no reason at the beginning. I see your point. It bothered me. Voiceover does need to be used sparingly. Uh, For reasons we'll get into later, though, I'm going to say I do disagree. I think this movie, what I like about it, one of the things I like about it, because I do... I'll just get it out of the way. I regard it as an actual great movie. What I think is it's very nicely... I do. I do. I I think it's nicely self-contained, and it's good to know the history because the reason, I think, that we have that intro is because two things, both the father and the 1960s itself have huge roles to play in the story, but I don't think this would have been necessarily a better movie if we'd had flashbacks or if we'd had... Oh, no, you don't need flashbacks. You can just mention it or t- toss it in. Yeah, but that said, I, I don't think it would have been a better movie for having scenes of them meeting at college. I think there is a time to have that, especially when it's actually vital, like how the actual details of the 60s played out for them. If it had been vital to the movie, I'd agree. I don't necessarily think that's the case, but I think a good story knows that there's a time to show and <laughs> Mark Twain be damned, there is a time to simply tell to get vital information there so that you have that going in to know about the characters. Because the 60s, I think, and here's where I think we might have something interesting. You mentioned earlier this movie is a lot about faith, and I agree that's there. I think it plays a very prominent role. The more interesting... It plays a very heavy-handed role. <laughs> that said, I think the more interesting thematic meat of the movie is about this relationship between kind of conservative nostalgia, Americana, things that are traditionally thought of as, you know, apple pie and milk kind of stuff, and how it blends that with this sort of uh, more wild spirit of the 60s. And sort of... Wild spirit? Wait, there was no real wild spirit of the This was very late 80s, early 90s sort of stuff going on. Yeah, but it's it's not about actually experiencing the 60s, but the 60s plays a very prominent role in the plot. Drives around in a 60s bus. Yeah, exactly. The (laughs) mode of transportation and agency is a 60s bus. That was one thing I liked. One, one, at least one thing I liked. That's what you liked about the movie? The bus? Well, the bus was probably one of the most consistent sort of themologies. I'm going to use my 60s pass and attribute it to this message I've heard. Like, okay. Yeah, can we... Can we move along in the plot synopsis to where we start talking about what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Why right. why, why did he build a baseball field in his farm? 
All right, give me give me a thirty second timer. All right, I'll ahead. synopsize. Okay, so it's about a man who grew up loving baseball, grew up raised on baseball, and had a fractious relationship with his father. He eventually, as an act of rebellion, moves out to California, Berkeley, in the height of the '60s, and meets his wife there. They fall in love over this counterculture, but eventually do end up moving to her home state of Iowa to raise a farm. And while, you know, they have a daughter. <laughs> Wait, dude. Is this heaven? No, this is your garage. Oh. Is my garage in Iowa? <laughs> no. It's actually pretty All right, close go to on. Berkeley. <laughs> so... Th- while there, they start a family. They become farmers, which is something he had never thought of. And as a corn farmer, he starts hearing voices in his cornfield that eventually compel him to build a baseball field. Wait, let's do a quick impersonation of that. In his cornfield. Yeah, he's in his cornfield, and he hears this. If you build it, they will come. He will come. If you build it, he will come. Better. And what's he do? Well, it's what the movie's about. He eventually ends up, based on this vision he has, building a baseball in the middle of his cornfield. A baseball field. <laughs> building a baseball. Building a baseball field in the middle of his cornfield. He built it out of nanobots. He does not build it out of nanobots. <laughs> and so the essentially the conflict, if we want to talk plot that drives the movie is he keeps receiving these visions, these voices in the middle of his cornfield that compel him to do these things. And uh, at the same time, due to the financial strain of building the field there, he's worrying about how he can manage to hold on to the mortgage of his farm. I feel like his wife is more worried about it than he is. He's just like, what? You're worried? Shit. Uh, What's going on? Oh, this is bad. Just a minute. He's worried, but he's so taken up with his errand that He's got a little more ability to put it out of his mind at various points. Okay, so who's giving him this errand? I, is it... <coughs> Bless you. Oh, thank you. Hi, yes, there's no seizing in podcast land. That was a timed... No, that was a sneeze. Um, anyway, um, so who's telling Who's telling him this? Where? What is this voice? Is this voice God? Is this voice Shoeless Joe Jackson? Is it... I think the movie answers it? that at the very end. Really? Yeah, yeah, we at the very end. Uh, <laughs> well, wait, we'll get to the very end when we get to the very end. But you think the movie answers it at the very end, tells you exactly who the voice is. It does. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it does. I thought it was always kind of ambiguous. But no, I guess no, we'll get to that when we get to the end. Well, can I answer it right now? Sure. Since Go ahead. Yeah. It's him. Spoiler it, full. The voice is him. It's it's an internal voice, even though, to be honest. So he's schizophrenic. <laughs> we'll get to that as well. <laughs> Did you know my mom once threw Kevin Costner out of his sorority shower? <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah. Kevin Costner's in this, by the way. Yeah, I don't Kevin think we've Costner mentioned that. Kevin Costner's the main protagonist. Well, I, I don't know. We're we're operating from the standpoint that you already know most of what you need to know. We actually tried to write down a little schedule this time, but it's made us just as tangential and random as we've always been. <laughs> if, if you're listening to this to have movies that you don't want to see spoiled for you, that's kind of weird. Mostly this is... People who want to hear uh, analysis of a movie that hopefully they've seen. Yes, of course. Grando Calrissian might join us, although I don't know if he's seen this movie. Well, we'll see about that. 
We'll see. We'll see after a break. Which we're not taking right now. Oh. So All go right. on with your plot synopsis. Which was supposed to be 30 seconds, by the way. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, do you want me to tell everything that happens yeah. in the movie? Okay, so if you build it, it will come. Dude builds a fucking baseball field in the in his backyard. Right. right. Yes, okay. And then his wife is like, all right. His wife is very supportive, actually. Oh, very. Uh, and then at a certain point, she goes like, okay, maybe I have to get rid of the baseball field. But that's later. Yeah, I mean, she's she's only reacting to the actual realities that weigh on them, which are just the financial situation of keeping the farm. Interesting point. The innocence of childhood, right? So forth and so on. Like, right. a lot of this is, like, people who are willing to see nostalgic and see the baseball players. Uh, the developer w- who wants to come in and sell the farm to another farmer who can get the 200 What's her brother? Yeah, who can get the, what is it, 2000 uh, $20 per acre is yeah, what the farmland's I worth there. 2200 I mean, like to that. be honest, a baseball field is less than an acre. So it's not really... <laughs> it's it's actually not that... Um, I'm pretty sure it's less than an acre, right? Cause my parents were on like one and a half acres, and that seems like about a baseball field or less. I have no idea. Hmm. Yeah, acre's really tough. I tried to go through this and try and figure out when we were at Brady's house once, it's, it's really difficult to figure out what an acre is. It's a really indiscriminate uh, thing. Anyway, um, I thought it was interesting that people who either have nostalgia... This is a film mostly about nostalgia. It's more about nostalgia than it is about faith, I would say, right? Honestly, like faith is just I something like that you touch stuff. on. Um, I don't think it's about nostalgia, like, underlined, but I... I think something, the nostalgia element is part of what to me is a more interesting, bigger through line of the movie than just faith itself. Is Obviously it about faith, faith is it, or is it about nostalgia? You said neither. It's not about either one? It's not solely about nostalgia, but nostalgia, I think, has a role to play. But faith, obviously, is a big part of this because we're talking about a spontaneous, crazy act that he undertakes. And, so, and because that act happens to bring souls back onto his... <laughs> farm to play baseball obviously that element of spirituality the idea of heaven the idea of an afterlife has its role to play i don't find that to be the most interesting meat of the film though i think something dealing with nostalgia but but also involving something a little more as well is really what brings me back to the film so it's nostalgia or it's faith or it's neither (laughs) it's it's not faith and it's not simply about loving Americana, bathing in this climate of, of nostalgia for its own sake. Okay, let's let's just put it this way. What are some of the main themes of the movie? I think we touched on faith, and we touched on nostalgia, and what else is there other than those two things? Which I would argue there's only really those two things, and it does not prop up an entire movie. And that's one of my problems with it. For me, what I think the movie is about, and obviously that's anyone's call every person can and should watch the movie and be able to cobble the meat of the story not nostalgia not faith but hold on sum it up in a word i've let you talk let me talk um wait if i look back at this waveform and see who's talked the most here (laughs) i think i've let you talk anyway go on i do thank you for that all right no i think nostalgia has a role to play uh, I'm going to go to a moment in the very late in the film 
where it's really looking like Ray is going to sell the farm to his brother-in-law, that this entire dream of keeping the field is a total Waterloo, that he just needs to let it go. And the Terrence Mann character, who's a J.D. Salinger proxy, you po- pointed out. Very right, interesting. Yes. In the original book, it was J.D. Salinger that he went to go find, yeah, he, not this fictional author, Terrence Mann. So he's, he's a hermited writer from the 1960s, a prominent 1960s figure, who both Ray Kinsella, the Kevin Costner character, and his wife both uh, have an extreme fondness for, and kind of also represents one of the big issues of the movie, which is this idea of the 1960s. Because what this movie's about, really, to me, is mixing the 1960s, something as wild and spontaneous and just eye-opening as the 1960s, with something more apple pie-ish like baseball. And so Terrence Mann gives this monologue late in the movie to convince Ray to keep the field. And what he says in order to, one of the things he says in order to get him to keep it is that baseball is a good thing. It's a good thing, something we should hold on to. So if you want to know what I think the most interesting idea that this movie about is, it's about holding on to good things, regardless of where they might fall on a political spectrum, regardless of if they're conservative Americana elements or 60s free speech elements, all those things are good things, and they shouldn't be dichotomized apart from each other, but should be thought of something that, as we move forward into our future, we should keep good elements of our past, regardless of, uh, of where they fall in terms of politics or anything like that. Okay, so you think this movie is about the fact that baseball was a good element of the past, present, and future, and then therefore it is a constant, and so therefore we should keep things like that around us and use it to stabilize kind of our identity as a, as what? As a nation? As a community? As an individual? As a what? I don't think this movie is forceful enough to be saying, do this. I think what it's saying is that these are good things. We shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, that... Essentially what it does for me, it's rescuing Americana from conservatism. At a certain point, I feel like, you know, (laughs) the liberal set has sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which obviously are awesome. Those are great things. And the conservatives have apple pie and baseball and things that are more traditional. (laughs) Exactly. But the fact is, I want drugs and I want sex. And after I have sex... I want to eat a big fucking slice of apple pie and watch baseball. And this movie is saying that those things can coexist. And it's, in in my opinion, it's a more subtle reconciliation of two unfairly dichotomized ideas than Forrest Gump was. Which is also, in my mind, about reconciling kind of twin poles of this American, very American 20th century political psyche. I really clipped the fuck out of the mic with that football, football. So I'm—I was just saying it again. So wait, hold on. Silence. Football. That way I can, you know, cut that back in later and cut out this little bit. But anyway, uh, going on to what we were talking about before I started doing my audio producing in my head. Um, yeah, I—I I don't know. I'm not sure that's a worthwhile endeavor for the prospect of a film, though. I mean. Uh, yeah, you can have this, you can have that, but let's all come back to baseball and agree on it, regardless of whether or not we're a hippie or a uh, conservative, or or the liberal is allowed to be able to uh, take joy in that of the conservative. So, so like, uh, I think like it's like somebody who's conservative but can also smoke pot. Basically, that's what you're saying. This movie is no, no. I th- I think it's really trying to like kind of 
more contextualize and erase those distinctions of conservative and liberal altogether. Obviously, there are actual important political issues, but I think what it's saying is that there are things that are just purely enjoyable, purely just soulful, that the entire nation can hold on to. And I think... Okay, let's let's see some specific examples that of that that we're talking about. Well, I mean, the big idea is this idea of how the entire movie is mixing up baseball and the 1960s. I mean, kind of. It's kind of mixing them up, but not really. How is it not really? Well, I mean, the author is from the 1960s. Uh, yeah, okay. But, I mean, there isn't really a whole lot... There's a lot of mocking of the 1960s going on. I mean, I, I think the fact that he's driving around the VW Bug and uh, that his wife says far out and stuff like that, but they're not actually... <sighs> okay, I guess you do have a point, because there is that scene. Well, what scene am I thinking of? The PTA meeting? Correct, about censorship. All right. So what's up with that scene? Oh, it's it's not a complex scene, but it... It reinforces, I think, what's going on, which is that these people who were products of the 60s, who grew up in the 1960s, and still have those positive viewpoints from the 1960s, are now living in an Iowa community. And this Kevin Costner character also comes, is also steeped in these ideas that maybe are thought of. Not that they are, but Okay, but he's the protagonist, and in this scene, he doesn't have really the agency to, like, push it forward. It's his wife who does it. It's not him. It's not that he doesn't have the agency. He's he's transfixed because he's just received another voice, and he's paying attention okay. to trying to decode this message of ease his pain. But it's in that moment as they're talking about the censored ease books. His pain. Ease his pain. By Advil. And so ease his pain, and he determined. <laughs> you know, it's it's not that Kevin Costner doesn't have the courage of convictions to represent the 1960s. I think we see through the movie that he absolutely has not been changed by this more conservative Iowa community, that he's still that Berkeley graduate. He's still that person who values free speech. He wishes his favorite author from the 1960s would write again. These are people of ideas who are maybe living in a bit of a stifling environment. And so what, what happens in that PTA meeting essentially is first to introduce who this man character is, this J.D. Salinger proxy, but also to show, yeah, to further reinforce that these people are dreamers, that they are products of the 60s, and yet they still like a thing like baseball. Because, I, to me, what I like about it, what's beautiful well, about it... Wait, he likes baseball because it's the uh, sort of idealist view of his father. It's his father before his father was corrupted by being beaten down by not being involved in baseball, right? He likes... I don't think that's the case. I think... He makes very clear that he was raised on baseball, that his father brought him up on that. But I think the movie has a very, I mean, one thing maybe we should get out of the way. If you don't like baseball, if you not just don't like baseball, but have some kind of very negative attitude about it, you probably won't like this movie. But no, I think the Costner character and his wife and his daughter are very genuine in their fond feeling for this game. Because I think in the course of the movie, it stands not just for itself, but also... For, for an idea that there are positive things in a more nostalgic Americana breed that are worth holding on to. Things that are pure, that aren't politicized, that are just pure and good. Uh, going back to that Terrence Mann line, that it's something that's good. That rather than thinking solely in terms of politics, we should hold on to what's good and true. And we should mix them, and we shouldn't think of it 
as one versus the other. Free speech, pot, uh, rallies, and baseball. Peace, love, dope. Peace, love, dope. They should all coexist harmoniously. And in that way, I think that's a really beautiful message. All right. I mean, yeah, that's a fair point. I just didn't get that from this film. I'm getting it from you, but I didn't really get it from the film. From the film, I kind of got... Okay, one of my main problems with the film is the cinematography is kind of boring. All right? Like, it's just, like, shot... Like, it's just, like, cookie-cutter shit. It's like... If you look at the movie poster to this film, it just says, Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams, and it's just him, like, doing, like, kind of a footloose, sort of, like, leaning on one foot. Yeah, with no, no. Leg <laughs> and it's, like, super blockbuster <laughs> bullshit, like, cookie-cutter family movie sort of marketing, and that's the way it was shot. And I think that there's something in the script that is touching on what you're talking about. And it's in the script, and it was intended, but the thing is that this, this thing was produced as a cookie-cutter bullshit family movie. Hey, look, don't you like Kevin Costner, middle-aged housewife? Yeah, you do. You threw him out of a shower back when you were a sorority girl, but now he's a movie star, and you can say that you knew him. And, and like, It's just the way it's put together does not pick out all these little things that you've picked out. And I think it's great that you've picked them out, but just well, when you're watching the, writing, the movie, though. I just feel like I'm in back at fucking church camp. Yeah, I, I mean, but I think those elements are there. And I, I want to say two things. Uh, first off, I am always very wary of how much I count a film's marketing and how I judge the film itself. I, I remember one of my favorite films of 2004 was Sideways. Wait, 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 wait. I wasn't saying the marketing. I was saying the way it was shot. Oh, no, no. I, and that's the second thing I'm going to get to. But in terms of the actual cover art of the film, I agree. It's It's terrible. But that happens. Like, a great movie like Sideways... I'm just saying it was shot like the cover art. They could take all these images that actually represent the soul of the film and what it's about, and when I bought my DVD, what do I get? The four actors' faces in boxes, one next to the other. Because marketing people do not know... They, marketing people should be required to watch and understand the movies, <laughs> and it's often, often not the case. My, my sister's a marketing person. Uh, Mandy is... Mandy is a great good in this world. She is a force for good. Uh, we Listen need more like your yeah, sister. Okay. <laughs> because too many are, are not focused on the art at all, but solely about the commercial aspect. But no, getting to the more important thing, because the marketing, to me, is a small thing, because it's so often out of the hands. I mean, here, here's a good example. Remember that Big Lebowski uh, DVD cover? And you've got that blur oh, that was great. about what the movie's about. Wait, wait, you written... mean the one where he's like standing with the bowling ball and then they're all behind him like he's an action hero? No, I'm talking about on the back, there's a blurb, kind of a synopsis of sorts, if you want to call it that, about what the movie's about, and they completely mangle it, and they misquote like the line about the rug. Like, what was it? Like, in the movie, it's tied the room together, and on the back of the DVD box, it says, he's lost his rug, you know, the one that made the room hang together like it's clearly made by a person who has not watched the movie right has been well, well, told they, no, about they watched the first 10 minutes and then they're like he says hang right he's a hippie <laughs> hey man oh by the way costner in this movie is kind of a jeff bridges like just doppelganger if jeff he has bridges that look, w- i agree well and he has that voice too He's just talking all... He wishes he had Bridges' voice. But, I mean, he is... like It's almost like he's trying to do it. He's, it's almost like he's trying to channel Jeff Bridges and Tron. You know, I've never seen the original Tron. I You've never seen the original the Tron? I have not. 
Oh, oh, you're gonna get some bad Twitter feedback on the Carney Couch thing from that. I welcome Every, it. Everybody, Twitter bad things about Brady not having seen Tron on the thing. It'll it'll let us know. I never that watch we, original movies, just their horrible reboots. If we have a listenership, that will be the way to let us know. Yeah, no, no, insult please. Brady or or tell me I'm a horrible person for telling you to insult yeah. Brady. Hashtag but gut punch. Go after me. Yeah, I can take it. Yeah, I've known him for 22 years. I get to okay, do wait, this, wait. right? But here, getting to the more important thing because this is actually about the film. Let's talk about the imagistic quality or lack thereof. Let's let's talk about the cinematography because I agree with you. There are times in this movie where you can clearly see that it's a product of the 1980s. It has that element to it. It's a product of the early 90s. If it was early 80s, I might actually pass. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if it was Days and Confused era shit, then it might actually pass. But this is like, it's later. Days and Confused is 93. Oh. Really? Yeah. Oh, shit. I'm an idiot. No, no. It's just, it's just it's, a mix-up. But it's shot and put together like it's a fucking Molly Ringwald. I know. It's yeah. supposed to have this coming of it's age. It's supposed to have that, that kind of trilogy from 16 candles and but no okay here's what i'll say i i agree with you that like this isn't a film whose chief strength is its mise-en-scene or its aesthetics there are a lot of very standard cinematography choices here but i will say that said it's a much much more imagistic film than it gets credit for and i think there are a lot of if nothing else because if and obviously the field itself predates the movie but the image of the field at night in the middle of the cornfield itself has entered the cultural consciousness. That well, no, itself... the field doesn't predate the movie. They made the field for the oh, movie. Oh, did they? Okay, yeah. well, hey, they, well, Oh, yeah. They power. made the field for the movie, and then they, like, wheeled in the grass because they didn't have time to let it grow, and then the grass all died, so they painted it green. Okay, so that alone, I, I find the image of the baseball field in the middle of the corn beautiful in and of itself. And I, I you know what oh, I was... No, th- I mean, it's... A, I think everything that has to do with the field is beautiful. I think basically the 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 first, well, after we get the monologue on the history about his father, because like really seriously, you don't need to tell us that. You could just do it via dialogue with him and the wife. I think yeah, because we do have the dialogue with him and the wife, and it's just like, well, if we're gonna have the dialogue, why do we have the intro? You could run the the stupid Hollywood audience that can't figure it out. Like it's it's just kind of insulting to me as the audience. I guess is the way I feel about it. Just like, okay, so you got to give me this whole spiel, and I'm gonna not listen to it so that I can be pleasantly surprised when you bring it up again and reiterate it later. But Um, but the flip side of that is, I think the movie is saying also like there is that side. And I'm all for a movie that, you know, the great movies are able to do that. They're able to organically bring you up to speed on what's happening. But I also can respect a movie that says, you know, if we put this into a conversation, if we had to film extra scenes of conversations just to bring you up to speed on this, it could be overly expository. Instead, this is just background information we need. The more important thing is the story, but these are elements that are going to come up later. I just feel like they don't need to come up twice, and they come up, and when they come up, they're self-explanatory. And we didn't need to have that opening monologue. So anyway, that there. But then the scene where he does build the thing, like the first 15 minutes of the movie after that inner monologue part is great. And I feel like we can have that and we can have him going to meet uh, what's his face. And then maybe half the time on him, him going to meet Terrence. What's his last name? Uh, Man. Yeah, I keep wanting to say Malik. But uh, him going to meet (laughs) Terrence Man 
and then we have a brief thing on him and the doctor. I felt like they spent way too much time on that. I really? do. Get I like the doctor scenes. I d- I do like the doctor scenes, but I don't like the amount of time spent getting to the doctor scenes. I feel like that one scene with the doctor enough to foreshadow this stuff, so forth and so on. Um, so you didn't like the scenes of him meeting with the reporter, and you're a good writer, so are you? Not really. I I kind of. And also, the there scenes. there are a couple tableaus in there that bother me because they, they end up the shot and then they just go like, well, this looks nice. And they put like a magnifying glass on top of the thing and you're like, oh, is that saying something? Oh, wait, no, no. They just thought it looks nice. So that's how they ended the shot. And that's really misleading to me. It's like, oh, are they going to do something interesting with this? No, no, they weren't. They're never going to do anything interesting with the cinematography. The cinematography is boring. Just get over it and accept that it is. Don't look for little things that you could possibly... Think that they're doing something clever with, you know? You're right. It's not clever, but I do find a lot of the cinematography beautiful. For example, in the Chisholm, Minnesota scene with the doctor, when he first, Ray Kinsella gets sent back to 1972, where essentially this doctor lives who had one shot to be a baseball player in the major leagues. And he was up to bat, and right before he comes up to bat, the inning ended, the game ended, and he couldn't bear the heartbreak of being sent back to the minor leagues. So he becomes a doctor in a small town. When Ray Kinsella and Terrence Mann, the writer, get there, they find out that he's been dead since 72. The movie's set in 1988. So he's been dead for 16 years. Uh, and essentially, Ray gets sent back in time and is able to talk with this older doctor around the time of his death. And I think there's a beautiful shot there where they're just walking through the foggy streets of the town. And we view them from, I think, the bottom of a darkened outdoor stairwell. And they're framed in kind of very silhouette lamplight. And I think the movie does take actual care to make this thing look good. It, it might yeah, not no, be... No, it makes it look good. It just doesn't mean anything. What means something... Exactly. But what means something to me is more the writing itself. I think it's a nice, lean story. And that's where I think a lot of the meat comes from. But I appreciate that the shots well, looked fine to no, me. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's a nice lane story. We could probably do this entire thing much more effectively in about 50 minutes. But it's not a long movie. No, but it's got about 50 minutes of material, and, and somehow they stretch it into 90. And Okay, and then the kid... I Okay, there's a scene at the end. Okay, so we meet this doctor guy early on, and then when they're driving back, they pick up a young version of the doctor who wants to go play ball and do all this stuff. Um... And my problem with it, like, he goes and plays ball, but then at a certain point in time, and this is straight out of the book, I think, probably. Like, it seemed like a very booky thing to do, right? Um, maybe it's not out of the book. I don't know. I'm just inferring that for how out of place it is compared to all the other stuff that's going on in this Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood movie. Um, anyway... <laughs> Uh, the kid is sitting on the thing, and she's like, no, they will come, Daddy. No, don't sell the farm. We don't have to sell the farm. People will come and pay a mission like a ticket. And then, like, the evil guy, who, by the way, looks like me. He's not evil. He's just no, greedy. He's it's still the 80s, after all. First of all, he's evil. And second of all, the person who wrote the book, I don't know the author's it's name. It's his brother-in-law. Uh, oh, no, his brother-in-law, the fictional brother-in-law, didn't write the book. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> the fictional <laughs> character did not write the book, uh, which he is in. No, no, anyway. no. I think the guy, the, the guy who wrote the book, his last name is Kinsella, the last name of our protagonist. I believe so. And also, so he wrote the book. He thought, uh, okay, he did a review on the movie. He's a Canadian guy. He did a, re- a review, a review on the m- 
He might not be Canadian, but he did the review for a Canadian newspaper. Uh, I, I do check Wikipedia and IMDb for fun facts about the film beforehand, if you're wondering where I'm getting all this shit, if and I'm not just making it up out of my ass. Um, I've got a fun fact. Did you know there are newspapers in Canada? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We need more banter. <laughs> so anyway... There are newspapers in Canada, and this guy wrote a review of this movie in one, and he gave it four out of five stars instead of five out of five stars for two reasons. One, the red-headed, red-bearded character who looks a lot like me was not evil enough. Not evil. <laughs> and That's two, ridiculous. Because, um... Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, I know what it is. It's that, um, that he didn't believe that that Karen character... Uh, the the baby kid person, who I was complaining about just a second ago, um, could be the child of Amy Madigan and Kevin Costner. She didn't think that she looked enough. And uh, that person played by... I, I don't know. I tweeted it out before the show when I was doing research. When was this review written? In 1989, when the film came out. This, this guy... Th- what the heck does this guy in the 80s know about the genome? That's ridiculous. Of course she could look like that. She had a brown-haired father. The brown hair is probably the dominant gene. (laughs) Okay. Also, we haven't mentioned the fact that Ray Liotta's in this movie, and he plays... Shoeless Joe Jackson. He plays Shoeless Joe Jackson. And one of the things that I thought was most hilarious was the the fact that the kid's name is Karen, and I cannot get out of my head Shoeless Joe Jackson yelling at Karen like, no one was going to find the cocaine. (laughs) <laughs> do, do it, Brady. <laughs> Brady can do oh, it really. Karen, no one was gonna come to the baseball game. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you know, now that I've, because uh, I watched this as a young kid. Now that I've seen some Ray Liotta, let me give some props to what a quiet Ray Liotta, maybe the only truly quiet very, Ray Liotta performance quiet. I've ever seen. But anyway, go on, Rob. No, it's very quiet. But anyway, um, so <laughs> he did complain that the red-haired, red-bearded kind of guy who was the brother-in-law who was going to sell the note of the farm to the foreclosers and foreclose upon them and take it away from them and so forth and so on is not evil enough. But then the guy pushes a child off the bleachers. He he did, it was an accident. They, they both do it. They're both like... Yeah, he picks, he picks her up and he goes like, you've turned your... Daughter into a spinstress. I don't know why he used that word because he it's didn't say spinstress. He says a uh, spinster. No, he says like mental case, basically. Like, I thought he said spinster. No, he says. Uh, I we rewound it and I watched it. This twice. is like I'm social case or something. Yeah, basically okay. a nut. Yeah, you've turned your daughter into a nut, and then like he sets her down, and then Kevin Costner's like, "Don't you grab my daughter!" And then like they kind of tussle over her like very and slightly, she, and she falls off the banister, and then she won't wake up, and then. Uh, Arch, Archie, yeah, Doctor Graham, yeah, Doctor Graham, but young Doctor Graham walks off the field and becomes yeah. old Doctor Graham. And who, j- just in case, obviously, as we say, this is for people who've seen the movie. But yes. just in case, the young, <laughs> the baseball player who is young in like 1910 or something is picked up by them in 1988 as his young self and taken to this magical field to get to live his dream of finally getting one at bat. And you know what? You know what I like though. Just a quick thing: most movies would have made a big thing about this and made him like hit a home run. All he does is RBIs. He hits. He pop flies into an out, but he gets to score. And the movie doesn't go any further than that. I appreciated that restraint. 
Yeah, restraint's a good thing. I, I'm, like I said, I feel like the script of this movie was meant to be a very well-done movie, and it just wasn't well-done in execution. It was very Hollywood. It was a vehicle for Kevin Costner and all this bullshit, and that's what fucks up the movie for me. It's just very cookie-cutter, right? And I feel like all the stuff that you're picking up on is in the underlying script, and it's there. It's just not highlighted properly because the film isn't made well. <laughs> I don't think it's made poorly. I... I don't think it's made poorly either. I just think it's cookie-cutter bullshit. It's, it's not poor. It's just made like a cookie-cutter movie. But, I mean, a film like this, to me, the script, in this case, I think, dominates all. Like, it's the story, in a, the case of a movie like this. A movie that sets out to be something visual. I'm looking at you, Zack Snyder. When you actually <laughs> set out to make a visual visionary masterpiece and fail. No, 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 no. I gotta say something about Zack Snyder that he's been brought up. Zack Snyder. All right. Every time there's a Zack Snyder movie, it says from visionary director Zack Snyder. Now, as far as I am concerned, this has been the tagline for every Zack Snyder movie since the first movie Zack Snyder made, which was it's really hard to say his name. Dawn of the Dead. Which was Dawn of the Dead. And would you say visionary director of Zack Snyder? No, he was a remake of Watchmen happened. Yeah, it was a remake of Dawn of the Dead. Right. Don, the original Dawn of the Dead, one of my like one of my favorite movies, like the maybe the greatest horror movie ever made, uh, really great, great right. zombie movie. So yes, but anyway, it keeps saying from visionary director Zack Snyder, and my thing is that I think they're trying to convince the younger audience who's like I loved John Woo when I was fifteen. I still love John Woo because I don't know brand loyalty, but. <laughs> I mean, John Woo's great. Like, I love yeah, watching. Face Off is awesome. Yes, Face Off is awesome, and all the shit that he did before, like, yeah, all those, all the fucking movies, like The Assassins. No wait, The Assassins is that that assassin. I think it's just singular. Fuck, I'm gonna just make an ass of myself and not remember any of the titles of all the generic Chinese movies I watched with JP of John Woo. <laughs> but I I watched a bunch of them. I love them. I don't love them enough to actually know the titles. Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, Zack Snyder. I think what they're doing is they're just saying, visionary director Zack Snyder. Like, whenever he comes out with a movie, so that when kids who are 12 now become 22 and they say Zack Snyder, they're like, oh, that guy's a visionary director. I think it's just marketing for brand loyalty to keep him, like, up, up late. Because... To be honest, and no one's buying fucking it. Watchmen isn't isn't like I like it. I like Watchmen because I, I like don't. I know you don't, but I like the comic that much, and like I just like the visual representation. I was suckered in by the fucking uh, Bob Dylan song at the beginning. Like I I just got suckered into it, and I was like, all right, the sex scene's absolutely ridiculous, and I won't get behind that. But everything else, okay, I'm fine with, except for the ending because. Okay, I'm not going to spoil the ending of Watchmen for everybody in, in the comic book sense, but the ending in the movie is not the ending. Okay, that's some bullshit. Anyway, but I mean, for the most part, I was be I I was I enjoyed Watchmen, even though I admit that it's a fucking horribly done movie. Also, 300, I haven't seen because you know what? I did see Sucker Punch, and everything Zack Snyder's ever done is a piece of shit. 300's <laughs> not good. Okay, so anyway, Zack Snyder. Not a visionary director, saying he's a visionary director, so 12-year-olds, when they become 22, will think he's a visionary director and go see whatever piece of shit he comes out with then. That's what I think these marketing fucks that we were talking about earlier, not my sister, she's awesome, um, are doing. Let let me bring us back here. 
because uh, I, I have one more. Actually, I think we need a break. Football! 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 Hi, everybody. It's Rob, and I'm still here with Brady Larson. And uh, we're going to play a little game he made up called Understudy. Yeah, the way this game works is we're going to do a famous scene, and it's such a shame we had the actors, the original actors, even the Ted ones, to read the scene that they originally did, and they had to back out either because they, you know, had to go back to the River Styx, Wait, or hint, they just I had... don't think any of these guys are dead. Well, I mean, but in the case that they are. Oh, right. You know, well, some of them are just lazy. <laughs> or on coke. Uh, so the idea is we we have so many connections professionally in Hollywood that we've called some other famous actors, uh, some of them also dead, uh, to uh, read the scenes for the original actors. So here we go. Uh, please do try to guess the actors and do try to guess the scene. Tweet us at Carney Couch. That's C-A-R-N-Y Couch uh, on Twitter and uh We'll go ahead and give you a retweet and a holler back if you get it right. So, start us off. How much do you know about show business? <laughs> Only that there's no business like it. No business I know. <laughs> yes, and there's no business more expensive. I'm 25 grand over budget on the latest. You saw him blowing his lines. He can't keep his mind on his work. You know why? One or two... Many refrigerators dropped on his head, no. number one. <laughs> you you can drop anything on his head that you want, but, but break his heart? Go to pieces like you and me. Read that. Uh, scene. Cooing over calamari is not so sugar daddy, wife of... What's this got to do with me? You're the private detective. You figure it out. Look, I don't have time for this. Look. I need to have my... T. Earl Grey, hot. Listen, his, his wife's poison, but he thinks she's Betty Crocker. I want you to follow her. Get me a couple of nice, juicy pictures I can wind them up with. Forget it. Have a seat. She sings at a joint called the Ink and Paint Club. So what do you think? Huh? Well? The job's going to cost you a hundred bucks. A uh, hundred bucks? That's ridiculous. So's the job. Uh, all right, you you got your hundred bucks. Have a drink. I don't mind if I do. Kind of jumpy, aren't you? It's just, uh... I know who it is. The best part is, they work for peanuts. Well, I don't work for peanuts. Where's the other 50? I need to engage. Let's call the other 50 a uh, carrot to finish the job. And that's it. So if you can guess the actors... I did a horrible impression, so I gave you some hints. And uh, the <laughs> luck, film folks. that it's from, hint, hint, my favorite movie. Um, go ahead and let us know via Twitter, C-A-R-N-Y Couch, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Marketing fucks. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening to Carnivorous Couch. Once again, you can tweet us at at CarnyCouch, C-A-R-N-Y couch and yeah, don't put this in there that was just me going how do i finish this sentence and i did um but i had a little pause in there don't put the pause in there because uh hank uh, that would be bad
So anyway, uh, let's do our closing thoughts on this movie here, right? Because we got maybe about 10 minutes about actual real talk on this left, and then we got to figure out a movie for next week. Right. Uh, do you want to go? I, I definitely have one, basically one last Oh, go for thought. it, man. Go for it. Okay. So, I knew coming into this movie I would be on the defensive. I know this is a movie labeled as various things, labeled as a product of the 1980s, sometimes labeled as overly saccharine. And luckily, I think I have the one magic stick that erases most sins. Oh, what's that? I think Field of Dreams is an excellent entry, especially because we need, I think, more modern entries in this genre. It's an excellent entry in the genre of genre, genre of magical realism. What, pray tell, is that? Is that like Sailor Moon? Magical realism is... I mean, I'm going to get this wrong, but... A big staple of it is you have the real world, and without batting an eye, you have magical en- elements that intervene into it. And, and w- I think one of the best examples of recent modern realism is Hayao Miyazaki. Recent magical realism or modern realism? Magical realism. Right. So, like, the the films of Miyazaki. Did you see uh, Ponyo? I did. So, you have all this magical stuff happen, creatures from the sea suddenly coming up, the god of the sea is walking around and making no hiding of the fact that he is the god of the sea. Right. And the human characters, you know, react to it in varying degrees of skepticism. But at a certain point, it's just accepted that this magic that exists within the artwork is a part of this world. <laughs> the reason I think... One so of you're the- just saying Willing's, willing suspense of disbelief taken to the extreme, saying like, okay, look, there's some magic shit going on here. Our protagonist accepts it. You basically, as the audience, are our protagonist, so you must accept it just implicitly as well. Well, yeah, in a sense, it doesn't belabor the mechanics of how it happens. Something unusual, something supernatural, something magical exists in this universe, and the point isn't so much how it exists. The point isn't what's out there in that cornfield. The point isn't how this child... (laughs) Has these genes. Oh, by the way, yeah, we were talking about her choking, but she has she has a sausage in her throat. Oh, isn't that sweet? Yeah, she has she, a sausage in her throat because she was eating a hot dog, but she wasn't eating a hot dog. She was just sitting on the stand to the imaginary... She was eating a hot dog. She was actually eating a hot dog? Yeah. Oh, I thought she was just sitting there, and then the hot dog thing was manifested by the magical realism. No, no, the... The hot dog's not magical. It's you mean they were making hot dogs at their park. farmhouse? Yeah, she she was eating, watching the game. Oh shit! Well, then I totally missed that because That's I, I thought that it was magic that the hot dog ma- like ended up in her throat, and they needed the magic man from the field to come fix it. No, no, they just needed a doctor. Um, no, no. But what I like about this, what I like about you know the Miyazaki films, what I like about all magical realism, one thing is just this acceptance that magical things can happen. It doesn't belabor the mechanics of it. Right. No, I mean, that's fine. But what I do want is for it to say something. Uh, Yeah, and that's exactly the thing. I mean, and and this is where I think we'll eventually fall on our different sides on this movie. This movie, to me, isn't so much about anything pragmatic. It's not even as much about the cinematography. To me, it's a fable. And so... And that's why I don't have as much use as some do for the actual religious faith elements. I like it 
As hey, you were never in UMYF. <laughs> no. You never tugged well, on a girl's ponytail. <laughs> of course it's easy when you have a, a film where the line is this heaven is there. If you're a youth minister, you're going to jump all over that. But I like it better as... No, but seriously, in 1998... Ma- seriously? 89. L- no, no, no. But this was 98 when I went to the fucking thing. So, I mean, this dude's probably been shuffling, like, you know, sh- shuffling, not shuffling, what, peddling this exact same fucking sermon for the past nine years and just not really doing its job but collecting a nice, nice five-figure salary for it. Anyway, yeah, go on with I'm what sure you I'm sure he saying. played himself off to what if God was one of us. He looked kind of like Saul Goodman, by the way. <laughs> Better call Saul. Uh, <laughs> no, so... What I'm saying is I am going to use my magical realist wand, my Aesop wand, my fable, my allegory wand to wave off some of the more, uh, the little tiny flaws of this movie. Because what I like about Field of Dreams is I think it's a magical realist fable for a modern age that is about the soul of, of America, essentially. The soul of a populace that has struggled with its liberal roots, with its conservative roots, and is trying to reconcile all good things, as Terrence Mann says. So can you reconcile baseball with the hippie movement? Can you reconcile protests with the wave? Well, no, you can't. Well, that... I mean, other than they both involve a crowd, but I mean, the wave is conformity, and the protest is obviously the opposite of conformity it's protest it, it is trying to circumvent tradition it's trying to circumvent the linear thinking of just think what your forefathers have thought that that's why i don't think it works really because i think i think you're going too far i think the film is simply posing the question out there even though i do think it works i don't man i i will go to a protest and eat my apple pie all day long well, okay, yeah, you can eat apple pie at a protest, but what I'm saying is you can't thematically represent baseball stadium it's and as being a, in a corollary of the pro like if you put those two things in a movie, which this film did they they don't mesh they they they've it's it's like pouring oil and water into a glass. Yeah, you can stir it up, and the little particles will be floating around in their little tornado, but as soon as that tornado settles, everything's just going to separate out into oil and water again. But, see, but then I'll say... It's hydrophobic, I'm technically... I'm liberal-minded. My roommate, the biggest baseball fan I've ever met, is liberal-minded. And we both love baseball. And, And I love other elements of Americana. I love bluegrass music. I love good country music. And I do think the two can match. Wait, define good country music. You know, as in country music, but not pop with the twang. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. Good pump country yeah. music is not like pop Johnny Cash, twang. right? Johnny yeah. Cash would be. Oh, Johnny Cash, Hank that, Williams. Okay, Hank Williams. Okay, but not what's pop with the twang. No, you're not. Let, let's just Swift. pick something that's pop with the twang. No, okay, not Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah sure. Not fucking. Uh, John Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> but okay, uh, before we get off into this tangent, though... Uh, John Cougar Mellencamp is pop with the twang, but was never considered country. Anyway, uh, yes, you wanted to say something real? So, okay, to you, so you don't think the two can mesh. Uh, I do, and I think if there's a value I take from the movie... I do, too. It's that these things, these nostalgic, traditionalist things, 
don't belong to a political faction. They belong to everyone. If they're good things, they, they belong they to belong the swirling to tornado us. of the stirred up mixture. But once the plot line, once whatever story you're telling subsides, they layer out again. Yeah, but I think the movie, without making too big of a show of it, understands that they shouldn't be dichotomized like that. So, but I'll say this because you've given me your answer. Your answer is I don't think these two things mix. I don't think protests and baseball. It's just not permanent. I think, but you think of protests and baseball as very distinct things. So I'll ask to you, just because in the end we want to regard the film itself, do you find at least the question of can these things coexist valuable? I, th- I think that question is valuable. I just don't think that th- this film poses that question at all. I think, I think the script that you obviously very clearly see through the you know guise of the murky water of this tornado that is the Hollywood bullshit that they put in between is this vehicle for Kevin Costner because they were trying to promote him as like an awesome movie star until he fucking bombed everything with uh, Waterworld. But <laughs> he, he stole an Oscar from Scorsese two years later. Exactly. And so Very the whole unfairly. thing is Kevin Costner was a vehicle and he was in this movie, which was this thing that they put together, which was actually, it, w- it would have been a great script. I would have loved to see this thing in the hands of Zemeckis. Zemeckis would have done a good job with this movie. But I don't know who directed it. It wasn't Zemeckis, right? Phil Alden Robinson. I, okay. you got to give him credit for this. He wrote the script. It wasn't Zemeckis. I, I do think the script is... Wait, he directed good. it and wrote the script? He did. Then why did he fuck it up so bad? I don't think... He, well, I mean, that's, that's the question for our viewers. Okay, well, maybe just he's a good writer, but not a good director. I don't know. Right, but I might mean, have also I, had a great. I, I just feel like with. the execution of the script. Like, I see all the things you're talking about, but I feel I don't feel them when I'm watching it. That's fair. That's and fair. I just kind of go like, "There's so much there, and you just didn't do it." I mean, that's how I feel. Well, no, I I think that's the perfect place to leave it. Is I've seen some patterns in this thing. Rob agrees with me on some of them, disagrees on others, and in the end also you seem to be saying that maybe it's a bit too muddled in how it draws those conclusions. Uh, and that's for the viewer to decide. Okay, well, What that, do you think about great. all that's that? That's an excellent uh, dialectic between you and I on this particular film. Hey, hurrah, um, our first dialectic, man. Yeah, that's there we awesome. go. Let's go for another one. What are we doing next week? We gotta, I think we, it's your turn to decide. I, I chose this one. You should well, you picked this one and we voted on it. Oh, we well, actually, Tess didn't vote on it, but oh I'd, yes, but I disregarded her vote because she was a specialist guest and specializing of not seeing the movie beforehand, and she was also the only guest, so it's kind of hard to be a specialist guest if you're the only guest. But anyway, uh, what should we do next time? We should do another thing that will probably provoke a dialectic between you and I. I agree. And What's a movie you like that I hate? Movie that I like that you hate. <laughs> Any misdirected woo? I don't hate John Woo. You don't hate John Woo. I don't hate him. I well, no, you know, uh, yeah, I hate Mission Impossible too. So uh, if you happen to love that I, movie, no, I, I, hate <laughs> it. I did like the dubs, but that was my. You sixth did. <laughs> well, I I I like that it. was like his no, tenth okay, dub sequence. Yes, but that's why I liked it. I was just like, oh, it wouldn't be a John Woo movie without the dubs. Thank and you. And then the for dub the takes dubs its in. mask off, and it's Tom Cruise. <laughs> Uh, I've become a dub. Well, <laughs> Mission Impossible 3 was even worse. No, no, MI3 is much better was, than MI2. What are you talking about? It's just Tom Cruise running through a, a, a 
town going, Jen Day, Jen Day. <laughs> yeah, but at least you get Hoffman. At least it's a decent That's villain. That's true. Philip Seymour Hoffman is a decent villain. But that movie, like, not even Hoffman could redeem the movie. That was the problem. I gave it, like, a B-. minus. I gave Mission Impossible 2 a C. Okay, let's think real hard and doing what's a movie? What's a movie? What's a movie? What is a movie? Let's just throw out some movies. And we'll just scribble them down. Got my fountain pen here. Okay, I'm just going to keep going with what comes out the top of my head. Back to the Future Part 2. Okay, uh, I mentioned this movie earlier. Uh, one of my favorite movies. You said you haven't seen it. Even though I don't know if that would promote a dialectic. But I'm always down to watch The Apartment. Okay, The Apartment. Beat the Devil. What's, what's Beat the Devil? Uh, Beat the Devil is a Humphrey Bogart um, movie written by, I think, Truman Capote? Mm, Capote. And uh, it's basically... Humphrey Bogart, ah, oh fuck, it's a bunch of rich movie stars who are vacationing away, and then they decide that they're going to make a movie while they're vacationing, and, like, Humphrey Bogart basically bankrolls it, and it's a huge flop, but it was a good movie, but it was a huge flop, and uh, Humphrey Bogart basically gets left holding the bag and pays all the money for the movie. I think it's, like, Peter Lorre, uh, written by Truman Capote. Has Humphrey Bogart possibly Steve McQueen? Hmm. We're going to have to look this up. I okay, okay. Anyway, uh, go on with more suggestions. The Apartment, Beat the Devil. Uh, God, I mean, what's on my head right now is things I've seen recently. Uh, th- there's a great movie I saw pretty recently called The Leopard, uh, which is an Italian film, but uh, featuring Burt Lancaster, an American actor who played uh, Archie Graham as an old man in Band Field of, of Dreams. Outsiders? I've seen Band of Outsiders recently. Uh, Godard, yeah. The Wild Bunch? I haven't seen The Wild Bunch yet. In fact, I haven't seen any Peckinpah yet. Uh, Altman? Uh, Altman's version of Long Goodbye. Uh, You know what? I haven't seen any Altman yet either, much to my chagrin. Uh, Fuck. What would I like that you would hate? Big Hit. I was okay on the Big Hit. It was was good. Uh... you like Tony Scott, and I oh, don't. Oh, yeah. Let's do... Um, uh, what Tony Scott could I want to do that you would, wouldn't would like, though? I mean, I'm I like pretty romance. sure I'd hate Domino. Domino's horrible. Okay. Well, not that one, then. <laughs> and I and I actually like Top Gun, and it's Top Gun-y way. So you won't, you won't get me throwing too much hate at that. 200 Cigarettes? I have not seen that. Is that the one with, like, all... It's like the ensemble... With Casey Affleck? Yeah. I think Reggie's in there, too. Who's Reggie? Christina Reggie. Oh, oh, Reggie. Ah, Maybe you're, she's not you're in there. Your lady love. And my lady love. I have a huge thing for Christina Ricci. Um, let's, uh, let's do 200 cigarettes or like some... Slur- or like... Uh, uh, oh, what's that fucking... Uh, what's that high school thing that's in... You know, you know the one I'm thinking about. It's got the chick from I Know What You Did Last Summer... Oh, I can't hardly wait. I can't really wait. I've got a certain fondness oh, for that. Okay, movie. well, <laughs> damn it. Um, that that, time's that Ridgemont Lauren High. Ambrose, she's talented. Ah, what can we do that's got some? Uh, man, I got so much stuff. I, we're just gonna have to pick out something. Okay, it's just um, let's do the Wild Bunch. Okay, I don't imagine there'll be a dialectic. No, I don't think there will be either. Or Altman's Long Goodbye. Hey, wait, one or two. Put it behind your back and stick it out. Okay. okay. And I'm not going to tell you what it's for. I'm going to pick what's odd and what's even. Okay. Okay. 
One, two, three. Rob caught his microphone cord with his fork of a two. Brady put out a one. So that's odd. And that's long goodbye. So we're going to do long goodbye, the Altman version, not the original version, next week. Okay. And stay tuned for later this week. We're going to drop our little commentary on the uh, finale of Breaking Bad. Just as a little bonus feature for y'all. Okay, yeah, bonus features. Nice. <laughs> Carnivorous couch. Shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch. With Brady and Rob. I want drugs and I want sex. And after I have sex, I want to eat a big fucking slice of apple pie and watch baseball.